Welcome to Jesus Without Religion. I'm Mike Sinar, your host, and I'm glad you're joining us today as we discover Jesus through the filter of grace. If you are a Christian, you are about to see the love of Christ like you've never seen before. Never again will you fear God or feel that you are inadequate or not deeply loved by Him. We know some people call that a license to sin, but as we go through this series, you're actually going to find out that soaking in God's kindness and total forgiveness of all sin, yes, all sin, is the only prescription that will actually lead you away from the disease of sin. Okay, well, it is really good to be back. <clears throat> Folks, we've been, uh, we've been having a good time doing a study uh, of this letter written to the Hebrews. And if you've been following us, um, we've covered seven chapters. I hope uh, if you haven't had the chance to uh, listen to those podcasts that it would be super, super helpful if you would go back and uh, listen from chapter one uh, and work your way through uh, chapter seven and then be uh, listen to this podcast uh, as we're going to be covering Hebrews chapter eight. And I say that because in my Christian experience, I've discovered that this letter to the Hebrews, unfortunately, it is one of the most wildly misunderstood letters um, probably that I've ever come across. And I've, I've been through many Bible studies in my lifetime. Um, but why is that? Why? Because this is taught as a scary letter that Christians might lose their salvation, that God's going to get you, um, and all kinds of messed up things that it's a... Uh, it's, we use this letter to uh, say that it's dictating a mandated tithe. And what we discover um, when we read this thing in context is that it's really a comforting letter. It's one of the most beautiful letters ever. It's a letter written uh, actually to Jewish people. It is not written to Gentiles. And by and large, these uh, Jewish people are people who have heard and tasted the gospel. They've heard the good news about Jesus. And there's a certain kind of sin that they're committing. And it's the, really, it's the only kind of sin that's actually being addressed in the first 10 chapters of Hebrews. You know what you won't find in uh, Hebrews chapters 1 through 10? You won't find any mention of even one kind of outward sin. You won't read about adultery, lying, cheating, stealing, coveting. Nope. The only kind of sin that is ever addressed in 10 chapters is the sin of unbelief. It's hearing the truth, hearing the good news, being made partakers, tasting the good news, and then saying, yeah, no thank you, I'm going to run back to the temple. And when we get that, man, do we start seeing this letter to the Hebrews very, very differently. We realize we're reading someone else's mail. We do not need to put ourselves uh, in the shoes of these uh, of the audience who's receiving this letter because it is not your mail. It is not being written to you. Now, it could be written to you if you're a person who heard the good news about Jesus. You went to church. You tasted the good news. You heard about the cross that Jesus died, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be rescued from their sin. Yeah, it would be you if you were made partakers of that message and then you said, you know what, I, I reject this guy, Jesus Christ. I think there is a God, but you get saved by performance. You get saved um, 
in, in the Jewish person's case, you get saved by uh, sacrificing an animal and shedding that blood for the uh, removal of sins. But that's not at all who this letter is being written to. So I've done a lot of talk. I know you guys want to hear this message, so let me uh, just dive right in. We are first. Let's just do a little recap of what what we discussed in our last podcast that was covering Hebrews chapter eight. You'll remember in verse six, uh, verse six told us something interesting. He says, "But now uh, he has obtained a more excellent ministry." I love that word. A better Jesus obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he also uh, the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So we know something. There's actually a comparison that's being made, and he's literally comparing the old covenant, the law, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, of grace, right? Faith through uh, salvation through faith. And he's telling us that it is a more excellent ministry. It is a better covenant. And it's founded on better promises. And let's be clear why it's on better promises. It's better promises because it is not about you. Because God could swear by nobody greater. He swore by himself. Meaning our salvation is not about our, our track record of avoiding sin and doing good things. Our salvation is about whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, the old covenant was about you. You, uh, the, the Jewish people, if you will, swore about, uh, they swore they would do everything written in the book of the law, but they didn't. And James says, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point has become guilty of it all. And then the following verse, verse seven says this, for if the first covenant, well, if it had been faultless, uh, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. In other words, hey, listen, guys, if you could actually be saved by the old covenant law, there wouldn't be a need for the new covenant. God's not stupid. He knew this. And why was it faultless? Because no human can do it. Through the law, no one will be found righteous, so the scriptures teach us, correct? So we continue on. Uh, the verse 8 then said, for a finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. What was he going to do? He said, I'm going to uh, effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then he said, in verse 9, he says, very interesting, he wants us to know something. He said, it's not going to be like the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's not. You know, on the day when he took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. And what was the problem? He said, for they did not. We all think, oh, you just got to do your best, do your best. No. Even these Jewish people, he says, they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. You know, there's something really cool about the new covenant. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. There's something else really cool about the new covenant. When you are faithless, I will remain faithful. You see, that's better promises. That's the better hope because it's not about you and your ability to perform. So what is the new covenant? Well, he said in verse 13, last week we learned on our last podcast, he says, uh, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old, get this, is ready to disappear. 
So what I'm saying is this, folks, is we do not have an old covenant and a new covenant. You know, people are like, ah, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. And I don't think anybody's saying that here. We're not saying the law is abolished. We're saying you're not under the law. Well, what happened to the old covenant? Remember, he said a new covenant has been has made the first one obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete, it's growing old and it's ready to disappear. So with all that backdrop here, let's go ahead and dive in. Um, Hebrews, uh, let me just pull up. Hang on. Sorry, guys. I should have been ready for this. We are going to pull up, uh, open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, uh, 1 through 15. We're going to read that there's a lot of stuff here in the first 15 verses. And I just want to uh, go those, and then we're going to start at verse 16, and you'll see why in a minute. Um, so let's just go through this. Uh, now, even if the first covenant had regulations for divine worship, Uh, and the earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was equipped with the outer sanctuary in which uh, were the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. Uh, This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the most uh, most holy place, having a golden altar, incense, and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which a golden jar holding the manna, Uh, Aaron's staff, which was budded, uh, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the atoning cover. But uh, about these things, we cannot speak in detail. Uh, Verse 6, he says, Then now when these things have been so prepared, uh, the priests are continually entering the outer uh, tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second Only the high priest enters once a year, uh, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself uh, and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been discovered while the outer outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol of, uh, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper uh, perfect in conscience since they relate only to food, drink, and various offerings, uh, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. A couple more verses, folks. Uh, And then says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things, having come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by human hands, that is, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, uh, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place uh, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Uh, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer uh, sprinkling those who have uh, been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more, I love this, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse you, uh, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And just one more uh, verse, uh, verse 15, he says, For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the violations that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal 
inheritance. You know, uh, we all are familiar with what a will is. Many of our uh, moms and dads have one, and some of us are now moms and dads, and we've got a will. You know, when do we cash in a will? When is that will cashed in? Is it when mom and dad are still alive? Right? And I think we all know, of course not. So we move to verse 16. This is, I don't know, let's call this the real reformation. (laughs) Okay? He says, For where a covenant is, for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Now, why is that important? The point is, we don't cash in on the new covenant while Jesus was still living. So the new covenant did not begin at Matthew chapter 1. People talk about dividing the word of God rightly. Um, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the bulk of these letters, the Jewish people are still under the old covenant. Well, anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is under an old covenant. Until Jesus dies, until there must be a death from the one who made it before the will goes into uh, into effect. So then verse 17 and 18, he says this, for a covenant is only valid when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. You know, this is why I can say the Sermon on the Mount was not uh, was not on new promises. Uh, we'll do a study on that at some point. I'd love to do a podcast. I've got a video on YouTube where we talk about the actual context of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, that's often taught as a, hey, it's the greatest sermon ever and you can do it. You can do it. You just got to try hard to keep the law. Um, the Sermon on the Mount was a great sermon. It was pitched to Jewish people, Jewish people who were chasing after law-based salvation, and they're ultimately going to reject Jesus and nail him to a cross. And Jesus is literally, he's not, his intent there is to say, hey, you want the old covenant? I'm going to give you the real, the real, the true standard of the old covenant, and I'm going to show you how buried you are trying to get right with God through the system that you're chasing, the Mosaic uh, Covenant. Oh, if you look with lust, it's the same thing as adultery. If you're angry with a brother, it's the same thing as murder. I mean, this is not a make-you-feel-good sermon. This is a sermon that should shut every single mouth of anyone who is trying to push the law because what we realize is through the standard of the law, no one can do it. No one will be found righteous through the law. All right, so verse 19, he says, For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself, uh, both the book itself and all the people. Wow, talk about some weird stuff. If we were doing that today, you'd think we were crazy saying that this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. So how did the Jews do keeping God's commandment? You know, consider that. How did they do keeping God's commandment? Verse 22 tells us, And according to the law, one, must, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, 
There is no forgiveness of sin. So apparently, blood, it has always been the only acceptable payment for sin. But the animal blood, right, that the Jewish people were chasing after, never really worked. It was nothing but a shadow, right? It was nothing but a shadow, as was the law. The law was just a shadow, a picture of the better thing that was yet to come. In verse 23, it says, Therefore, it was necessary for the copies, for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Animals are earthly things. Jesus is the heavenly thing in context here. Verse 24, he says, For Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Human temples, nothing, no value. Heaven is everything. One is man's work and the other one is God's work. You get it? One is far greater than the other. So, continues in verse 25, he says, Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Jesus did not enter often, okay? He did not enter year by year. Jesus made his sacrifice and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why did not Jesus enter often? Why? Because you're not being forgiven over and over and over again. It's not being reactivated. What we have is a once for all forgiveness. It worked. The blood of Jesus Christ, we do not need continual sacrifices like the Jewish people did with animals, right? That was more of a system, a tradition. Jesus Christ died one time and by by one death, we have been forgiven for all time because he lives forever to intercede for us when we mess up. Verse 26, we're almost through this chapter. He says, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now Once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what was put away, right? Sins were put away. How were they put away? By you begging and pleading? By you repenting? By you turning from it? No. They were put away because of the cross. They were put away by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Listen, even the Old Testament people, the Jewish people, they got it. Look, I mean, they would have a, once a year, they would have this big animal sacrifice and they weren't out there trying to get forgiveness of sins by, oh, you got to, first you got to agree, then you got to confess it and then maybe shed a couple tears running down your eye and get on your knees and beg and slam your face on I mean, man, we go down some rabbit holes when it comes to, to the new covenant forgiveness, right? Jewish people would have got this, so... What do we have under the new covenant? Jesus Christ has died your sins, and this really does offend the religious ego. Your sins and lawless deeds have been taken away. They are remembered no more. We don't activate it day by day, moment by moment, confession by confession, right? 
He died once for all. Now, some people say, ah, boy, that's a license to sin. You're, You're making excuses just to get out there and do whatever you want. Absolutely not. Sin is bad. Sin is terrible. So what do we do when we sin? If we're not supposed to get on our knees and beg, oh, God, I'm a terrible man. I'm disgusting. Please, please forgive me. When God would say, I did forgive you. I died on the cross for your sin. You're not reactivating the cross. You're not... What are you trying to do? Put Jesus back on the cross? He died for your sin. So again, I ask you, well, what do we do? What do we do when we sin? If we're not supposed to beg and cry um, and humiliate ourselves and get on our knees, right? What do we do? Here's a crazy idea. How about you just stop the sin? Don't do it. It's really that simple. Stop the sin, number one. Look up and say, I know you've already taken my sin away and you've made me righteous, you've made me holy, you've made me sanctified, that you will present me as blameless. And Lord, I want to give thanks for you. Give thanks for what you already have. We don't need to keep asking and begging for what we already have been given. That denies what Jesus has already done. So again, two simple rules. What do we do when we sin? Number one, stop doing it. Number two, look up and say, thank you. Thank you for the cross, Jesus. I know that you have already dealt with my sin. And finally, the last two verses, uh, verse 27 through 28, uh, and it says, and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die, once after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been sacrificed once, one time to bear the sins of many, he will, now get this, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So what comes after men die? Well, judgment. But when Jesus, remember the one who believes, what? Scriptures tell us, the one who believes is not judged. And we know this, and I love this. Your sins have been dealt with, and because he remembers your sins no more, as far as the west is from the east, has he taken them away, you will be presented as blameless, the scriptures tell us. And that's why this makes sense, that when Jesus comes back, if you have called on him to rescue you, he will not reference your sin. You are clean, you are close, and you are forgiven. God bless you all.